Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. And Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, July 7th through July 31st in Logan, with performances of Souvenir, 33 Variations, The Fantastics, and I Do, I Do. Details and tickets at utahfestival.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times titled America's Brutal Racial History is Written All Over Our Genes, writer Libby Copeland writes that the uh, debate around race consuming America right now is coinciding with the technological phenomenon, at-home genetic testing kits, revealing many of us are not who we thought we were. Uh, Libby Copeland is author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. We talked with her last year. And uh, the book's coming out soon in paperback. We're checking back in with uh, Libby Copeland uh, uh, today. Uh, Libby Copeland, welcome uh, back to the program. Oh, Tom, thanks so much for having me again. I'm so happy to be here. Appreciate you taking some time. Uh, so uh, uh, that was May of last year. The the uh, pandemic was just revving up. Um, and uh, New York City, uh, New York area was the epicenter of, of, the, uh, of the pandemic at that point. You said, uh, I think at that point, New Rochelle was just a, just a, a horrible area at that point. Um, so how, how are things now as we're uh, yeah. hopefully have a little more hope? Vaccines are out. What, what's the yeah. feeling right now? Yeah, well, I live in the New York area, and um, it's been super interesting to watch the vaccine rollout. I won't say that it's been the smoothest thing I've ever seen, but a lot of people are getting vaccines, and that is the most exciting thing, especially for members of my family who are older. So I feel like we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm looking forward to being able to get mine, hopefully, in the next few months. Oh, yeah, yeah, hopefully so. I've had uh, a couple of friends who told me uh, when they went in for the first vaccine, they they cried. It's just such a, oh such a relief. I can imagine. I mean, whenever a friend of mine gets one, they'll, like, text me a picture with their little sticker or showing off their arm. You know, I have a friend who's a doctor who was one of the first to get in her area, and it's just the most astonishing feeling. Um, you know, I've, I can't imagine ever being quite so grateful for a vaccine as for this one. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, uh, boy, almost a year now. Um, you said at that point your your kids, like many many kids, were at home doing school on computers. Yeah. Were they able to go back at, at any point here? Sort of. Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> sort of. Um, we have a kind of a hybrid system here. So we have a mix of remote and in-person learning happening. Um, and just, you know, I have to say being in person is really good for, for children, um, really makes a difference, especially when they're younger. Um, so that's definitely been a big improvement. Yeah. At that point when we talked, uh, you were thinking, well, you know, maybe no summer camp this year, right? What about this year? Yeah. So this year, I think we will do some sort of summer camps. Um, you know, I guess we've gotten a little more used to um, the shape of this disease and what kind of risks we feel comfortable with. Um, 
And so, you know, limited outdoor summer camps. Now the kids are quite good at wearing their masks and distancing themselves. Um, we might be able to do some weeks. So I'm, I'm looking forward to them being able to enjoy that kind of tradition of summer, but, you know, always with that extra vigilance that we've learned to live with. Uh, so kids are doing well, I guess. They've learned to use your mask and yeah. social distance. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the kids I know are better than some of the adults I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> At remembering their masks, bringing them with them, and keeping them on. Mm-hmm. And that even goes for myself. You know, I would say I'm not as used to keeping it on all day because I work from home. And so, um, you know, but the kids, they're in school when, on the days when they're in. They're wearing their masks for hours, and they're quite good at it. Do you, uh, uh, has this year, uh, specifically, you know, maybe looking at your kids and their friends, is this, um, do you feel like they're resilient and that, 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 that they're okay with, with this and they've gained some resilience, or, or is it the opposite? Well, I think, you know, if we had kept on the way we were in, like, March, April, May of last year, which was um, a complete lockdown with no contact whatsoever except what you could get through online, um, I think we would be in a different space. Um, But what we were able to do here was kind of figure out ways for um, the kids in our community to be together in a safe way. So, you know, that meant outside with masks, um, you know, at some sort of distance playing, um, you know, together um, on a play set. And I think, you know, that and, and being able to be in school at distance, you know, I have to say, I think the kids are remarkably resilient. And I think um, I think that just being able to see their friends under even, you know, slightly different circumstances, having to wear their coats and their gloves and their hats all day because they want to see each other so badly that they'll stay outside for hours in the winter <laughs> around a fire pit. I mean, that has made an absolutely remarkable difference in terms of their moods. And so, yeah, I think they are resilient. And I think just being able to meet them halfway through this has, has made a big difference. Uh, one more question on this. Uh, I don't know how, well, I'll just ask you about your family. I, I wonder, it's probably a variety of experiences, but uh, there's been an enforced family closeness through this, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's, oh, yeah. I don't know if it's good or bad, probably both. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure for some people it's been a mixed bag. I have to say for my family, I, I feel pretty grateful for it. Um, I've gotten to see my kids a lot more. We've spent a lot more time. I've had to scale back my work schedule a little bit. Um, I've learned to bake. Um, you know, they bake with me. So, you know, regardless of whether what we're eating is so good after we <laughs> bake it, um, I have to say I feel like um, this time together you know, in some ways has been a gift. Not that I think that this pandemic has been a good thing at all. And I realize for a lot of people who are really suffering and sick and have lost people, um, you know, it's it's certainly not something you can speak about with a ton of positivity. But the one silver lining, I would say, for some families has been that, that time together. Mm-hmm. One more thing I want to get an update on. We talked uh, about a year ago um, about an article you had written just a month previous at that point for Psychology Today. I'll just read the headline, subheadline. Genealogy provides the strength to persevere. Knowing your family's past can help you get through a crisis. And in, in this article, I'll, I'll direct people to Psychology Today um, for this. But uh, th- this idea that uh, through genealogy, learning about your ancestors and what they went through can help strengthen us today. Yeah, yeah, I really think that's true. And, you know, I, I wrote that and uh, because I was sort of hearing it buzz up through, um, th- 
through circles of friends who were looking for um, sort of strength and guidance based on what their ancestors had been through. For instance, during the um, the Spanish flu epidemic, which was you know about a hundred years ago. Um, and then I, you know, within the months of that piece coming out, I wound up doing another piece for Psychology Today because, in fact, I started seeing the data, um, and there was data coming from companies like Ancestry suggesting that they were seeing a hike in subscriptions. Um, there was data from um, professional search angels saying that they were getting more requests from people who were seeking their immediate kin who suddenly felt like, okay, this time is so uncertain, I haven't got anything to lose, let me now seek out my, you know, biological dad, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's been um, really more of a hunger during this time. Part of that may just be because, you know, a lot of us are home more, um, we're limited in terms of what we can do, so a computer-based activity may appeal. But I also think, like, going through such a destabilizing and frightening and anxiety-provoking um, experience as this pandemic makes us want to know that we've been here before, to um, to feel like there's a template for getting through it, and we have to look pretty far back, um, and you know, in many families, to see that we might have to look back a hundred years, and we might have to draw inspiration from a grandparent or great grandparent, and know that they suffered and they made sacrifices, and um, hopefully came out okay on the other side, and and learned something from it that they were able to pass down, and that's. That's a gorgeous kind of continuity to be able to learn from and then pass down to our own children. I just want to read this paragraph. I mean, there's some great stories in here, but um, this one's so impactful. Uh, It's quoting Libby Copeland, Psychology Today. Genealogist Jennifer Mendelson told me that her paternal grandfather's story of loss during a similar pandemic a century ago especially resonates right now. He was one of only 10 siblings to live past his 20s. In 1918, he lost his wife to the Spanish flu and then his only living brother two days later. Uh, that's <laughs> it's hard to process yeah. that, right? But that that it really is. But but the, I, I I guess Jennifer Mendelson uh, would tell you that perhaps gave her strength. Yeah, I think you know knowing that that people can survive this kind of trauma um, is is helpful knowing that they were just like us. I mean, that was one of the things that Jennifer was telling me in that article um, and that I went on to kind of expand upon was this idea that, you know, we tend to look back at people who went through extraordinary things like like an epidemic or like, for instance, um, the Holocaust was another example she was giving that had a particular family connection um, for her. Um, you know, we tend to look at those people who went through those experiences and assume that they were uniquely suited to make it through, that they had some sort of super power that we don't. And in fact, of course, they were just like us, right? They didn't come into it with any particular, um, you know, special powers. But they figured it out. They figured it out on the ground. They, um, they were creative. They used their brains. They, they did what they had to do. They made hard choices. And those are all the things that we are having to do, right? Sacrifice for one another sometimes, make difficult choices, limit ourselves in terms of what we do, wear our masks, um, you know, maybe cut back on certain activities. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes care for people who are sick and sometimes lose them. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, you know, maybe, maybe a couple generations from now, you know, our people who are descended from us will look back and say, how did you make it through? I can't imagine. I couldn't have done it. Well, of course, you could have, right? And, and history and crisis calls on us to, um, to, to 
be up to the challenge. And that's that's exactly what we're proving ourselves to be right now. And, and that's what people, you know, that's why people look to the past. It's among the many reasons we look to the past, is to know that they, we've done it before and we can do it again. And I suppose uh, people look to the not only the general past, but their particular past, right? Their particular ancestors, because there is that 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 close connection, right? If 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 my ancestor, who I come from, did this, then maybe I can't. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, you know, it's not as if you can say, oh, it, you know, that particular. Uh, survival trait was passed down in this particular gene to me, and therefore I, um, you know, I'm uniquely suited. I think it's more this idea that um, that the trials of history can seem fairly abstract to us. If you look at um, a tragedy like the Spanish flu, um, you know, you look, you, you're looking in aggregate, you're looking at raw numbers, you're looking at so many people dying, and it seems. It's like something far away. It's a long time ago. It's a lot of people. If you look at it on a personal level, because it was something that happened to your grandfather or your great-grandmother, and you know that they made it through, then you have a personal connection to it. And history is suddenly not far away and not abstract. It is deeply personal to you. And I think that's part of what makes us feel strengthened by it, is this sense that it's history in in you know in in deeply intimate terms. I just want to mention one more uh, story. This and I think we probably mentioned this about a year ago, but this is in the Psychology Today uh, article. Uh, it's it's just it's sad, but it's beautiful. Um, you talked to Jason Harrison, manager of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, and uh, the, the, he and his wife had lost a baby a few years yeah. before. So I wonder if you could uh, if you remember that to, to tell tell us about that. Yeah, he. Um, when I was reporting for my book, The Last Family, one of the amazing trips I got to take was, you know, to come out to Salt Lake City and and do some reporting and some personal genealogical research at the Family History Library. And uh, um, of course, it was, you know, a really incredible trip, um, and I learned a lot. And um, one of the folks that I interviewed there, who's a manager, told me. You know, I was just asking him, you know, what does genealogy do for you? What, is it, what does it give to you to understand your roots? And he was talking about he, how he and his wife had lost a baby and how then in research they had discovered that, um, that in fact, an ancestor, I believe it was um, his wife's grandmother, had also lost a child. Um, and that, that gave him and his wife, he said, a particular kind of strength, he said. You know, it, it felt as if... Um, you know, there was a connection that, that they knew that they had kind of been here before in their family, and it, it allowed his wife in particular, he said, to to kind of um, get through that moment. And they wound up, um, if, if memory serves, I think that they researched it and found that that child that, that her grandmother had lost didn't have a headstone. And so they raised money to to um, to buy one and to have one put where that, that baby had been buried. Um, And so they took this moment of sorrow and they found a way to not only connect it to their own family history, but to make something kind of lovely and, um, you know, better come out of it. Uh, And I think that that kind of story, you know, that kind of story about what genealogy can do for us and how it can help us, um, you know, help us see the world a little differently and maybe make things a little better. I think that that is sort of uh, genealogy at its best. Mm Mm-hmm. 
yeah, beautiful story. Uh, so before we go to break, uh, just that you, you've, I imagine you've asked a lot of people that question. What does genealogy do for you? What do you, what do you get? What's the impulse? What, uh, what are some of the answers yeah. people give? Yeah, um, you know, obviously for some people, um, you know, there's a sense of, of loss at not having known who their people were. Um, you know, if you come from a community where um, records weren't kept or records were burned, um, you know, you, 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 you have a sense perhaps, particularly for Americans nowadays, a sense of rootlessness. Um, and a desire to kind of root yourself by knowing where you come from. And that, that lack of paper records or the difficulty of accessing them uh, or simply not knowing any more than perhaps the oral history that was passed down, that can be really um, frustrating. And um, a lot of people have told me that when they've been able to do the research and discover where their people come from, then they, they achieve more of a sense of rootedness. They kind of know where they are, and, and, they, and they have a sense of, I guess you would say orientation on the earth, um, you know, knowing where their people come from, it gives them a better sense of, 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 of standing on firm ground. We're talking with uh, Libby Copeland. Uh, she is author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. And uh, that book is coming out soon in paperback. And uh, she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently. We want to get into that after the break. America's brutal racial history is written all over our genes. And so we'll have more uh, with Libby Copeland following this break. UPR is supported by our members and Cash Arts, presenting the Music City Hitmakers, award-winning songwriters the Warren Brothers, performing the songs they penned for Nashville's most notable stars, reimagined for symphony. June 26th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at cacharts.org. Hanging baskets and planters look beautiful early in the growing season and make an amazing addition to any yard or garden. However, by the time the heat arrives in late June or July, they can struggle and suffer without proper care and eventually find a new home in the compost pile. The secret recipe to keep your hanging baskets and planters looking beautiful all summer requires only a few simple steps. Fertilize, hydrate, and repeat. Use a water-soluble or liquid fertilizer every three to four days and hydrate the soil completely on a daily basis. Use a soil penetrant or hydrating agent if your baskets dry out too fast. Consistent watering, a regular fertilizer regimen, and your persistence can make all the difference in a gorgeous planter or an early addition to the compost heap. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're talking with Libby Copeland. She's an award-winning journalist and author. Who writes from New York about culture, science, and human behavior. And as a freelance journalist, she writes for such media outlets as The Atlantic, Slate, New York, Smithsonian, New York Times, New Republic, Esquire, and others. And uh, she's the author of the book The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. It's uh, coming out uh, quite soon in paperback. Is uh, out and available. Uh, and she wrote in a, a recent op ed in the New York Times titled, America's Brutal Racial History is Written All Over Our Genes. Uh, so, in that article, Libby Copeland, you uh, talk about the growth of these consumer genetic uh, testing companies, 23andMe, Ancestry, others. Uh, it's, uh, they're booming. 
Uh, this is a booming industry. Yeah, it is. And a number of um, big deals recently, you know, all in the time of this pandemic have sort of underscored that. Um, as you probably know, um, Ancestry, which is right there in Lehigh, was purchased, majority purchased by Blackstone um, at a valuation of $4.7 billion, I believe. Um, <laughs> so, um, and that's not the only happened recently. There's a, a, a pretty big um, deal happening as well for 23andMe, um, where they're going public, um, and they're valued at $3.5 billion. Um, so this is all happening in the midst of this time, um, and, uh, and, and in fact, there's even more movement in the direct-to-consumer DNA testing space. And so, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by, um, you know, what's happening in this space um, in the middle of this, of this pandemic and also, you know, the enduring appeal of um, direct-to-consumer DNA testing for Americans who have flocked to this product more than any other place. And we've, uh, companies have sold old 37 million direct-to-consumer DNA kits. And just to give you a sense of that, when I first started um, reporting for my book, The Lost Family, I started reporting it back in 2017, so about four years ago, and there was um, cumulatively, they had sold 8 million. So we've gone from 8 million to 37 million DNA test kits sold um, by the four major companies. And that is... um, mostly to Americans, and at this point, um, more than 15% of the U.S. adult population has taken a direct-to-consumer DNA test kit. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, It means that many, many, many Americans um, are learning things about their families and about their roots and about their their genetic uh, ancestry that they would never otherwise have had access to. Sounds like at home, the genetic testing is a bigger thing in the U.S. than other places. Why do you think so? Um, there's a, a number of reasons, but I think, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that um, many people who live in America now came from someplace else, and their families went through a process of um, assimilation. And during that process, you know, they often shed a lot of their foods, customs, languages, um, sometimes their religions, um, on the way to kind of becoming, um, you know, assimilating and becoming more like mainstream America. And we happen to be in a moment right now where a lot of people are kind of looking up and saying, oh, okay, but where did I come from, right? Like, who am I truly? There's a desire for, I think, what some people would characterize as a kind of authenticity that comes from knowing where you, where you come from. And there are a lot of Americans um, who don't know, for instance, where a grandparent came from. Um, and they're looking up and they're kind of just, you know, they're kind of curious about it. And then you see the popularity of shows about, about you know, this industry and about genealogy and DNA testing, shows like Finding Your Roots on PBS or Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and those shows have kind of popularized the idea of discovery, um, the idea that you can learn something about yourself by looking at the past. So, you know, there's a lot of factors, um, but that, those are some of the, those are some of the, the forces. And, um, you know, interestingly, of course, you know, as you, as you probably know, Utah has played a pretty big role in all of this. Um, and, um, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has played a big role in, um, you know, making genealogy available and mainstream. And I think that that availability of records through places like FamilySearch, which the church runs, and um, places like Ancestry and MyHeritage, which are subscription-based, 
those kind of dovetail with DNA testing because very often you're using one to understand the other and then using the other to understand the one, right? So you find out, you, you, know, you do a DNA test, you find a, a couple of interesting genetic relatives, you want to figure out how you're related to them, or you find out an interesting ethnicity estimate that surprises you, you want to learn more about that, and then you are subscribing or going online for free um, genealogical records to, to get context for the DNA. So the one works right in hand with the other. And so, you know, you can't really understand the phenomenon of DNA testing on its own until you've also looked at the popularity of genealogical inquiry in the United States. And those two things go together. This might be a good time to uh, for you to give us a, a very brief DNA primer. Um, so you you know if you'd go to twenty three, and me or ancestry, uh, I think what you you spit into a something right and send that to them. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah yeah yeah. What happens from there? What, yeah. How can they figure out these things? Yeah. So there's two basic ways of doing it. You're either spitting into a vial or you're swabbing your cheek to get some some cells out of your cheek. But either way, you know, you're 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 sending into the company with the thing that they want is the cells which they're opening up and they're and they're accessing the DNA. Um and then you're getting within, say, a few weeks or a month or so, an email back that says your results are ready. And you're getting two key pieces of information from those results. The first is your ethnicity estimate, which is a pie chart that shows where in the world your various branches of your family come from anywhere from, say, 500 to 1,000 years ago. Um, and that is an estimate because over time the companies get better at making these predictions because the companies each have slightly different ways of predicting these things, and because, you know, DNA is very similar to other DNA, right? We're 99.5% genetically identical to every other human being walking around, and it's not as if your DNA raises its hand and says, this part of my DNA is from Korea, or this part of my DNA is from Spain, right? It, it can look very similar to other people's DNA, so some of this is a process of intelligent interpretation by the companies, and it can be, um, it can be a little bit off sometimes. And then the other key piece of information that you're getting is your DNA relatives. These are people who have also tested for the same, at the same company. And so they're showing up as genetically related to you because you and they share overlapping genetic segments. And in contrast to ethnicity estimates, these are not estimates. These people who are showing up as your relatives are your genetic relatives. Now, they may not be able to always tell you exactly the nature of the relationship, right? But they can tell you the degree of relatedness, and that's where you can use a little bit of um, genealogical research and maybe some genetic genealogy techniques to figure out how you're related to these different people. So when you get talking about race, as you do in this piece, um, and uh, the subtitle of subheadline in the New York Times, our country has struggled to reckon with the horrors of the past, uh, brutal racial history. Could DNA tests help? Uh, one factor is I th- it, this happens quite a bit. Uh, a person may be surprised by their uh, genetic yeah. test, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I I wrote that op-ed for the New York Times a couple, I think it was the week before last, because I was particularly interested in in the process of surprise. Now, there's there's many different ways that you can get a DNA revelation um, in your DNA results. And part, you know, one um, scenario is that you're finding relatives that you didn't know you were related to, um, 
possibly because your own genetic origins aren't what you thought, or there's some, you know, really um, hidden family secret, um, you know, that, you know, perhaps a parent had a child before uh, your parents were together and, ne- and didn't, you know, no, no, never told anyone, and so you have this, you know, 20-year-older half-sister that you're suddenly discovering in the database, and you're going to your parents and saying, hey, explain this, right? And there's lots of those stories out there, and um, my book, The Lost Family, looks at the landscape, the emotional psychological landscape of those revelations and how they play out in kind of a 360 fashion across families. Um, The other thing, though, that my book and my research looks at is the phenomenon of surprises about genetic ancestry. And, of course, that sometimes goes hand-in-hand with surprises about your family. Um, And, and, you know, so the the focus of that New York Times op-ed that I was particularly interested in is this idea that we are in a very specific situation right now in terms of how we are talking about reconciling ourselves to um, our understanding of race and our history of racial inequities in this country. And it's very interesting um, that at this very moment that we're having those discussions and that kind of historical reckoning, that many DNA testers are also finding that that history is in their genes, right? So, for instance, um, there's been research by the company 23andMe looking at um, the numbers of white Americans, self-described white Americans, who actually have 1% or more of sub-Saharan African DNA, and they don't know it. Um, and, you know, that is part of the American story that people are discovering just now. Um, I write in my book a story about a man who believed that he was um, of Italian-American descent. Um, and, in fact, he was not. It was um, his mother had told him that they were Sicilian because she was trying to protect him um, from the knowledge that, in fact, um, that his grandfather was a black man and she was biracial. And she had suffered such... Um, racial bias and, um, you know, terrible things said about her when she was growing up that she was bound and determined to not let her son know um, their family history, you know, in an effort to really to protect him. So she told him that they were Sicilian. But through DNA and genealogy, he was able to discover, in fact, he was not Sicilian. Um, you know, he had significant African ancestry. And to try and understand how, um, how you know, the cruelties of that time had kind of taken that away, but now he had the opportunity to reclaim that identity, reclaim that past, and he's embarked on genealogy to really understand his, um, not just his white family, but his black family, and to meet his black relatives. And so that's been kind of an enormous gift, a sometimes painful gift, but just an enormous gift for this man. Uh, how do people, I guess there's a wide variety of uh, ways people take this, uh, you know, both if you're, uh, you think you're totally from European ancestry and, and you find you have, have some African-American, um, you know, uh, history, or, or the reverse. There, there's African-American uh, families who discover they have more European uh, ancestry than they thought, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of African Americans that I've interviewed um, will say, you know, I know that European is there um, because they kind of they they know the history of their people and they're aware that. Um, in fact, during the time of slavery, there was, you know, often a great deal of sexual violence enacted on black women by white men, their owners. Um, and as I write in the New York Times um, op-ed, you know, that 
as well has been borne out by research, including a recent study by 23andMe that looks exactly at those circumstances. And so you can see sort of the inequities of history in the contemporary genes of you know, present-day African Americans, and that's kind of a bracing history lesson. Um, at the same time, some African Americans don't know how much European is in them, um, and sometimes, um, and I've had friends who said that they were surprised by how much European uh, they had, and um, you know, there's an interesting kind of conflict between you know knowing the reality of your genes, but also knowing that the world treats you um, as black because the world sees you as black. And so it's it's a question of what do you claim, right? Um, and and that is a really interesting question for a lot of African American testers: is how much do they claim that European ancestry? Um, knowing that it got there in ways that are very, very painful to acknowledge, right? So how does that do to you to kind of know that you are descended from somebody who did this terrible thing in addition to being descended from the person um, to whom the terrible thing was done? Um, One of the other interesting phenomenons that we're now seeing is families, meeting families um, that are connected by slavery. So, for instance, um, a black family meeting their white cousins. They are both descended from the same white um, slave owner. Um, But, you know, one branch of the family is descended from the union between the white slave owner and his white wife. And one branch of the family is descended um, by the union between the, the white slave owner and the black woman that he enslaved. Um, and this is a really interesting um, sort of, uh, you know, delicate um, kind of, you know, connection that can be made. I, I was just at Roots Tech this past weekend, um, which is this amazing, the largest genealogical conference in the world, um, and um, it, it's still it's, it's free and virtual this year, and it's still available, and you can, you can go there and you can watch the talks. And I had a talk there that I really enjoyed giving. But one of the talks I enjoyed watching was between exactly this situation, two genealogists who were connected in precisely the way that I just described, one white and one black, and how they worked together to understand their family history and to really face you know, just what history had done to them, to not, to not look away, but to kind of trace it in a methodical, um, you know, uh, genealogical way to understand exactly how they were connected and to really, I mean, I think this is an opportunity to look at history in the face and say, yes, this is what happened, and to record it. And that's important for us in terms of our understanding of history, and it's important for um, our descendants to understand um, the history of America. Uh, an illustration here of what you were just talking about, uh, and yes, it does make it, it makes it personal, right? This is not just, yeah, uh, not just uh, you know history. And, and some people want to say, hey, you know, it's four hundred years ago, it's a hundred years ago, whatever. Can't we just get past this? But it it's right there in our genes, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, uh, you know, I think. We happen to be in a moment when, yes, there are some people who um, who feel we should sort of move on, um, but it, but in fact, you know, it hasn't really been that long. Um, if you look at um, even just the history of inequity in the 20th century, and frankly, the inequity that continues, right, in so many different ways now, um, it's truly not over. And I think, you know, being able to look at the facts. Um, and particularly if it impacts you and your your understanding of your own family, being able to look at that um, allows us to um, allows us to move on. If we if we ignore it, if we if we if we whitewash it, um, I I think then it's a wound that never heals. 
I want to quote this a couple of sentences here. This is from the uh, op-ed, recent op-ed in the New York Times by Libby Copeland, who's uh, joining us. Um, Recent research conducted by 23andMe demonstrates how America's brutal history is revealed through our genes. Uh, I'll just uh, quote the next uh, couple of sentences. While the majority of enslaved people brought to the Americas were male, the study found enslaved women had a disproportionate impact on the gene pool of their descendants, evidence of systematic rape and sexual exploitation of enslaved black women. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, uh, I mean, we know slavery was horrible, right? But yeah, uh, we, 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 I think we try not to think of some aspects of this. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that, something like that, right, the disproportionate impact of, of African women, enslaved African women's genes on the modern day gene pool, that is a scientific reality that coupled with our understanding of history, um, allows us to, you know, to really see how, in many ways, we carry the past with us. We carry the past in our genes. Uh, And, you know, that, I think, can be an opportunity, because there are so many people who are launching themselves into this quest of the self at this moment, right? They're, They're sending away, they're curious, they're like, let me take a DNA test. If those people, um, some portion of them, can learn something about the past, right, um, that they didn't know that helps them better understand how we came to be, um, you know, and maybe in some cases how we came to be so unequal, I think that that can make us better because, because, we, are, because we are sort of, as I said earlier, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about genealogy is that it takes what is abstract and distant and makes it personal, so I think if you see the inequities of history and you see the truths of the past written in your own genes, it can be an opportunity to um, to reconcile yourself um, to you know to where we've where we've been you know how how far we've come and what there is still yet to do. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment with uh, Libby Copeland. Uh, if you just joined us, Libby Copeland is uh, the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. Uh, that's uh, out in paperback soon. And uh, she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times uh, recently, just a week or two ago, titled America's Brutal Racial History is Written All Over Our Genes. And you can join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com if you'd like, upraccess at gmail.com. And we'll have more with Libby Copeland following this break. UPR is supported by Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Libby Copeland. She's author of the book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. That's out in paperback soon. And um, she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently titled America's Brutal Racial History is Written All Over Our Genes. Um, so let me couple in a, uh, you um, quote Harvard scholar Henry Louis Gates, uh, Jr., 
Uh, he's calculated there are millions of, quoting from the article, millions of contemporary whites who, according to the old notorious one-drop rule of the Jim Crow era, would have been considered legally black. Yeah, and that um, that actually comes out of another study that 23andMe did a few years ago where they looked at the number of um, white self-proclaimed white Americans who have 1% or more African ancestry and found that it's about 4%, and in some states in the South, about 12%. Um, and, you know, the <laughs> the old one-drop rule, which I think was still in place in Virginia up into, into the 60s, if I have my, my, my facts right, um, you know, it w- sort of was this, absurd um, measure of, of racial difference that, um, y- you know, it, that that data coming out of the 23andMe study really sort of points to the, the craziness of looking at race that way um, and the way that we used to sort of um, distinguish between white and black as a sort of a, a purity test. You know, we now understand from a great deal of, of, of genetic research, just how much of a continuum American, I mean, not Americans, the human beings are on, right, and how much we share, um, and how much of race is, is truly um, what, you know, the phrase is a social construct, you know, so there's many, many more, um, you know, divisions that we kind of create socially and politically um, than what you can see in our genes. Um, and and that uh, that study looking at those white Americans kind of I think points to um, put, you know put, sort of puts a puts a fine point on um, on the absurdity of those old distinctions about race that that used to be the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely true. By the way, um, I want to bring forward just uh, portions of a couple of comments in response to your op-ed, 818 comments, <laughs> uh, popular article. Um, so Peter says, DNA testing cannot define your race because the whole concept of race is not scientific. It's a social invention. Then just a little later in the stream, uh, Norman uh, replies to Peter, race is a social construct. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um so uh, you just you, you just uh, address this a little bit. I wonder if you could address a little more the, 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 how, how does this all fit in? The, the, the DNA testing can tell you where your ancestors came from, yes. uh, right? And then you make inferences from there. Yeah, so, you know, there are ways of understanding, how, you know, one's genetic ancestry. Um, and that is certainly true, and that's why you can get an ethnicity estimate, you know, that tells you where your ancestors are from, say, 500 to 1,000 years ago. Um, but race, as we've defined it in this country, is somewhat arbitrary, right? So we've made kind of divisions um, that, that emphasize some things and ignore others um, so that we can have these sort of um, distinctions between, say, black and white. So the, the kind of way that we've defined race in this country is really very much a social construct. Um, and, the, you know, the, 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 this exact debate, in fact, um, has played out a great deal. In fact, I write about it in the book, um, you know, in the pages of the New York Times, in fact, um, and, and, and the Atlantic and elsewhere, you know, this exact debate, you know, what, what is it that um, companies are doing when they're showing biological difference if it's not race. Um, and there's a kind of a distinction between our social uh, construction of race and um, the more narrow, um, you know, I think would you would call it biogeographical um, ancestry distinctions that, um, that can be found on an ethnicity estimate. You, uh, 
you say that sometimes there's a reductionism that comes, uh, that frames discussions of ethnicity estimates, and you cite a, an ad from Ancestry. What if you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Ancestry has had some of the most successful advertising for, um, for their DNA tests. And um, and they've put a great deal of money behind advertising, and they've also had some fairly prominent um, misfires. And the ad that I was talking about in the New York Times op-ed was a particular ad that fig- features a figure skater, um, and it's you know she's a very very good figure skater, and it was shown during the Winter Olympics, I think. And it says you know where did she get her grace, her precision, um, her various other you know attributes, um, and it suggests that she got them from her DNA. So she, you know, and then it kind of invites these, um, I guess you would call them ethnic tropes, right? So, you know, her precision comes from her, I guess, um, you know, Swedishness or, or Scandinavian and her, um, you know, her. I, I can't remember what they all were. Her grace comes from her Asian, um, you know, ethnicity. And, of course, that idea that you, um, you could be passed down these kind of stereotypical... Um, you know, qualities um, through your genes, that smacks of a kind of a genetic essentialism that that is frankly not great. I mean, it's, 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 it's dangerous in terms of how we think about, um, about DNA because DNA doesn't work like that. Um, and thinking like that tends to kind of reinforce ideas about genetic difference that we really want to be getting away from. And you go on to say, despite the reductionism that you just talked about that sometimes creeps in, you say this moment may offer us an important opportunity to grapple with the blunt facts of our nation's history. After all, you say, to heal from the past, we first have to be willing to see it for what it was. Is that the way that this might help, to to help us more clearly see the past? That's my hope. Um, you know, it, you know. Obviously, it's hard to say when there are millions of people who are getting different results. If there's one sort of approach that's predominant, right? And I haven't. Um, I've interviewed and corresponded with hundreds of people, um, and and um, but not millions. <laughs> but of those hundreds of people, what I found is is that yes. I mean, I think you know there are times when people get DNA tests um, that reveal surprises about their families or about their about their roots that you know that they walk away from they don't they're not really ready to to grapple with that um but there are many many cases where people see those um those revelations as an opportunity um they're they're an opportunity to to research their way into a better understanding of the past to have difficult conversations with their parents and grandparents about where they truly came from, um, and then even to connect with, um, you know, family members who maybe they would not have known that they um, were related to who may not look like them. Uh, you know, I've, I've interviewed people who, um, you know, were thinking long and hard for the first time about what to call themselves. Um, you know, went for a doctor's visit and for the first time considered checking both white and black on a, on a form, whereas previously they'd only checked white because that was the only thing that they knew about themselves. Um, and so that kind of process of, um, you know, coming to terms with the past and looking at it more fully, I've heard enough stories from enough people about how DNA tests have prompted that for them that I do feel hopeful that that, that could be, you know, where we're going. You also you talked about uh, checking the boxes. Um, you also say in this article some people have legally changed their names to reflect their forebears. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yes, a number of people I've interviewed um, did change their names, either because um, they understood their, um, you know, their genetic ancestry better, and so they wanted to take on a name that honored an ancestor um, or honored the community that they came from, or because, you know, they learned, for instance, that they, um, you know, they weren't genetically um, related to their dad, and so they decided to take on their this surname of their biological father, um, you know, just kind of different ways of, I guess, putting into the record um, and living out um, ways of honoring, um, you know, where you came from, honoring both. And, and I should say that for many people that I interviewed, it's not an either-or thing. It's not a, um, I'm just going to chuck all my experience and go with my genetic identity, right? I'm, I'm, I, you know, my relationship with my father, he's not genetically related to me, and all of a sudden it doesn't matter and I don't love him anymore. It's not that. Um, it's both. Uh, for many, many people that I've interviewed, it's a kind of very emotionally nuanced process of, of coming to terms with both truths, that, that you have, were raised one thing, but that you're now discovering that you are also this other thing as far as biology is concerned, and that that information was kept from you for a variety of reasons. Maybe your, your ancestors were trying to protect you from discrimination, but then now is the moment to kind of claim that in addition to this identity that you grew up with. We just have uh, two or three minutes left, and I want to address some some uh, things in general, some concerns uh, some people have about home genetic testing. Uh, the first is um, this idea that uh, you know my cousin say uh, gets gets this, and uh, for laudable reasons, maybe I don't want my information out there, right? And perhaps my specific information won't be out there, but my cousin doing it <laughs> will reveal some things about me, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of the things that I talk about a lot in, in talks. It comes up a lot in, in, you know, book talks and when I'm addressing genealogical groups and, and other groups. Um, you know, is what does it mean when, it, when, when somebody else tests who's related to you and you don't want to test? And, you know, we have reached a sort of a tipping point where, you know, family secrets um, are coming out whether or, not, um, whether or not you choose to test. You may be impacted by information about a family secret or, say, a family health you know, issue um, because a cousin tested, because a um, you know, because an aunt tested, and we see this as well in the um, you know the space of criminal investigations. You know, if you are related to somebody, you can um, discover their identity even if they're not in the database, um, and that means increasingly we need to start having different kinds of conversations. Um, you know, it, parents need to be talking differently to their children about their own genetic origins. They have to kind of proceed with the assumption that that certain truths um, it, are going to come out inevitably. It's just a matter of time. Uh, I wanted to just a couple minutes here to talk about security. Uh, I, I know that's a concern. You you send your swab into uh, 23andMe, and it's for genealogy purposes or whatever, the purposes you want. But if that information got out, uh, that, that could have a lot of ramifications in other areas. Yeah, and I think a lot of privacy experts are kind of watching this space, holding their breath to see what's going to happen. And and different companies, um, you know, have different kind of ways of protecting data, and you'll see real differences. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, a 
smaller third-party site that holds DNA information might have um, different controls than, you know, and less robust controls than a larger company. Um, but, you know, nothing is perfect. Um, and you hear company founders talking about this. And would just give 23andMe has talked about how, you know, they, they do their very, very best to protect this information. And, um, and at the same time, you know, you know it's, nothing is foolproof. Um, and I think the bigger companies in particular are kind of so aware of privacy concerns that they make this a big part of their emphasis. But, you know, going forward, we kind of don't – we don't really have the ability to predict the future. <laughs> and there always is that concern about information coming out through a breach or information coming into the wrong hands, right, and insurance discrimination or other kinds of, um, you know, bad effects from your DNA information becoming public. We just have 30 seconds for this, but I'm curious. You've spent at least four years in this space, right? What, uh, what, what, are, you, uh, what are you most curious about next? Yeah, so, you know, I'm really interested in, um, you know, all the kind of changes that are taking place in the industry right now with recent um, purchases and mergers happening. All four major companies, 23andMe, Ancestry, um, MyHeritage, and FamilyTreeDNA have all announced um, changes in the last few months in terms of of ownership or mergers. Um, And so that's that's a really um, interesting thing to watch that I'm continuing to report on to try to understand where we're going. I'm really interested in how much of the future of this industry is health-related, um, and, you know, what kinds of innovations are going to come out of that space. Um, I think we all have health on the mind right now, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We're all kind of looking for innovation in the health space, and we're all kind of curious about, um, you know, about, about, you know, the future of personalized medicine, and I think some of these companies are hoping to be at the forefront of that, so I'm, I'm curious about how that's going to play out. Well, we'll look for that reporting as it uh, comes out. Uh, the Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, is out soon in paperback. And uh, you should check out the recent op-ed in the New York Times by Libby Copeland. America's brutal racial history is written all over our genes. Uh, Libby Copeland, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Tom, for having me on again. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, for me as well. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Support for Utah Public Radio programming and Spanish language programming on UPR is made possible by the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.